นโมทัสสะบะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสามิ Uh, good evening to everyone. Sorry about the delayed start. I was waiting for everyone to show up in the temple. <laughs> Seems to have been some crossed wires along the way, but uh, anyway, here we are. So uh, this year, um, there was a suggestion that we do readings from this book um, that was published last year, called Catastrophe Apostrophe: The Buddha's Teaching on Dependent Origination Cessation. And so this is. Um, Put together uh, by myself, or published by myself uh, last year. So, uh, with a caveat of shameless self-promotion, I didn't suggest it to be read, but somebody else did. But I'm happy to read it out because, as I've been saying, I feel that the um, teachings on dependent origination are very, uh, uh, very much the, the core of the, of the Dhamma teachings. And uh, Lumpo Sumedho in Past years would uh, spend the whole winter retreat just giving teachings about uh, dependent origination, and um, and so I felt it was a, a valuable uh, topic to to visit, uh, both for everyone's well uh, well-being, also because uh, I was very familiar with the material. <laughs> Often, even even when you're reading your own book, sometimes you find things that are in there that you didn't realize you put in there. Oh, did I write that? But, uh, so maybe I'll discover a few things I put in here that I forgot about, but I, I'm fairly familiar with uh, with most of it. So um, hopefully it'll be a good basis for exploration and uh, informing our practice. So I'll read the preface first of all, uh, and uh, just to get things underway. Can everyone hear me? Okay. Over the last few years, I have led residential retreats, specifically on the theme of dependent origination, on at least five occasions: at Amravati in the UK, in Meriem, Thailand, and with Le Refuge at Monastère de Sigriers in the south of France. Various aspects of this rich, essential theme of Buddhist teaching have been focused upon in these different situations, according to the interests and needs of the various communities. The little booklet entitled "Just One More: Appreciative Joy, Jealousy, Selfish Desire, and the Buddha's Teaching on the Cycles of Addiction," which is one of the four books on the Brahma Viharas that I did, uh, that was based on material from one of these events, a 10-day retreat at Anamravati in July of 2013. Most of the material gathered in this present book was presented at a retreat in Provence in April 2018, and the remainder is from the. Merim retreats of 2016, 17, and 18. The subject of dependent origination is intrinsically rich and varied, subtle and multidimensional. As the Buddha expressed in this notable exchange with his disciple and attendant, Venerable Ananda. So this is from the Mahanidana Sutta in the Diganikaya, Long Discourses, the great discourse on causation in the um, Diganikaya. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living among the Kurus near a town of theirs named Kamasadhamma. 
Their Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down to the Blessed One, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, It is wonderful, Venerable Sir, it's marvellous, how profound this dependent origination is, and how profound its appearance, and yet, to me, it appears as clear as clear can be. Do not say that, Ananda, do not say that. This dependent origination is profound, and it appears profound. It is through not understanding and not penetrating this Dhamma that this generation has become like a tangled ball of string, matted like a bird's nest, tangled like coarse grass, and is unable to pass beyond the cycles of rebirth, beyond the planes of deprivation, woe, and bad destinations. So Venerable Ananda, as usual, is being corrected by the, the, the Buddha when he gets a little bit in, uh, enthusiastic. Um, so the Buddha frequently says, you know, not so Ananda, do not say that Ananda. But that sense of uh, uh, conceptual understanding of, uh, of, that, of this process is one thing, but the true and uh, complete penetration of it is another. Uh, and I think I mentioned the other day in a Dhamma talk um, how the, the, in the, um, the discourse on the elephant's footprint, in the middle-length discourses, Sutra number 28, the, um, it's, the Buddha is quoted as saying, um, uh, one, who has seen depend, one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. So that's in the, the greater discourse on the elephant's footprint. So it's also it's kind of interesting in that sutta, then uh, the Buddha says, you know, as it has been said, one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma, one who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. But Bhikkhu Bodhi's note on that is that actually you can't find that anywhere else in the Pali Canon. <laughs> the only place where you where you find it. And so the, the Buddha's saying, uh, you know, as it has been said, but there's no other place that's been recorded as uh, at least in the Pali canon as it's come down to us. There have already been many erudite and wise explorations of the subject published in English, such as Dependent Origination, The Buddha's Law of Conditionality by Venerable P.A. Payuto, and uh, later on in the retreat, hopefully, um, if we get through this in time, we'll, uh, I'll uh, pick that up and we'll go through some of, of uh, Venerable Payuto's uh, teachings there, and I personally I feel that's the, the best book in English on dependent origination. Very accessible, very thorough, and very uh, multi multifaceted and well translated. Also, there's the collection of five chapters on the theme in Ajahn Sumedho's book, The Way It Is. So there's a uh, Dhamma talks that he gave at the winter retreats here at Amravati. So there's five chapters altogether in uh, The Way It Is, all on dependent origination by Lumpur Sumedho. Uh, and then Ajahn Buddhadasa's book, Under the Bodhi Tree, the Buddha's original vision of dependent co-arising, as well as many others. The intention of this present volume, whilst acknowledging the already great storehouse of perspectives available, is to focus upon practical means of understanding and applying the principles of dependent origination in order to, to support the freeing of the heart from addictive and destructive cycles of attitude and behavior. In particular, the emphasis will be on the exit points from this wheel of becoming, the bhava chakra, this cyclical process where the mind feels itself to be imprisoned in a habitual round of promise, gratification, and disappointment. So, any questions or clarification needed? These readings are for you, they're not just for me to sit up here and, and 
spout, so they're there for all of you. So if there's anything that you'd like to ask about or anything that comes to mind, be uh, be most welcome to, to speak. Okay. The choice of title for the book was influenced by the fact of presenting the material at a retreat a retreat centre in France and the presence in the local mythology of Asterix and Obelix for the, the title Catastrophe Apostrophe. For many people, um, I know English is not the first language of most people here, but even for people for whom English is your first language, that would probably be an odd combination of words. Um, but that's deliberate, of course. So, uh, and in French, Astérique and Obelisque in French. In some respects, the two are perfectly matched as friends and companions in many adventures. So I presume people are familiar with Asterix and Obelix, the cartoon books by Goscinny and Underso. No? Uh, no? Uh, so uh, they are um, uh, many, many stories of these two characters. They are dwellers of a little uh, French village in Gaul, uh, France, in the time of the Romans, and they have a, uh, a magic potion that they that they brew up that gives them extra uh, uh, extra strength so that they can continually confound the Romans. So always there's like one part of France is unconquered by the Romans. It says Gaul was divided into three parts. No, actually it was four. And the fourth is the little village where where um, uh, Asterix and Obelix live without going into too much detail. Anyway, so that's a, a very popular story in France. And it struck me how uh, many years ago these two words, catastrophe, meaning like a disaster or a big problem or, or some kind of crisis, uh, uh, and apostrophe, um, which means uh, like a, a little uh, uh, a punctuation mark that indicates uh, where some letters are missing in a word or uh, an abbreviation, that the they are referring to completely different things, but they are also they they are quite a, quite a close match because in Greek the, the the both words come from the Greek, and the kata and apo are a, a pair like cathode and anode, or in uh, Christian philosophy, cataphatic and apophatic uh, ways of uh, of relating to knowledge. So uh, uh, the um, Cataphatic is to say yes to it, like uh, talking about what the nature of ultimate reality, the nature of God, and apophatic is talking about what God is not. So that kata and apo are a pair, but then also catastrophe and apostrophe would seem to be completely different. And then anyway, not to go into too much detail, but uh, Asterix is a very kind of tiny little guy, but when he drinks the potion, then he becomes super strong and is very clever and cunning. And his friend Obelix is very large, and he fell into a vat of the magic potion when he was a baby, so he became permanent, permanently strong. He didn't have to drink any more potion, and he's not very bright, but he's a good a good guy. So, um, and then I was in, uh, and I I had in the back of my mind, it's strange how apostrophe and catastrophe are similar words, but they have opposite meanings. And then I'd been asked to give a ten day retreat on the theme of dependent origination in France. And somehow or other, while I was on that retreat, it sort of crossed my mind that, uh, and I'm not quite sure what triggered it, oh, well, asterisks and obelix is kind of like catastrophe and apostrophe. And then, as I was talking about dependent origination through uh, the, the whole ten days of the retreat, I realized, well, actually, the the arising, the, the arising part of the cycle, 
how dukkha, how suffering gets conditioned, that's the catastrophe. And then the, the paticca niroda, the cessation part of the, the cycle, the, what's called the patiloma. Anuloma is the arising part, or patiloma is the, uh, uh, is the, um, where dukkha niroda, the cessation of dukkha. That, just like an apostrophe is a, 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 a thing that represents a nothing. It represents an absence, it marks an absence. I thought, well, niroda also is a word that marks an absence of something. So as that retreat progressed, I thought, well, uh, that's, that's not a bad way of representing these teachings on dependent arising, dependent cessation. And so then, uh, when I was asked to, uh, to put the book together, uh, and, uh, the, the, uh, the people in France said, oh, could you, uh, can we put this together as a book and we'll translate it into French? And I thought, okay, well, maybe I can use that, uh, that pair of terms as a title. So that's where it came from. Not that you needed to know that, but in case you were wondering, like, catastrophe, apostrophe, what the heck's that about? So, in some respects, the two are perfectly matched, as friends and companions in many adventures. But in others, there's a radical contrast between them. Their names share a, a rhyming ending, uh, yet in meaning they are utterly different, an asterisk being a small star-shaped star punctuation mark, while an obelisk is a tall, pointed, monumental stone column similar to the menhirs regularly carried around by the eponymous hero. So Obelix used to make big stone, slabs of stone, and carry them around. He was a menhir maker and deliverer. Like Stonehenge, the kind of stones of Stonehenge used to be seen carrying those around. Accordingly, catastrophe and apostrophe might appear to have nothing to do with each other, but in other ways they can be seen as a perfectly matched pair. And I talk more about that as the, uh, the book progresses. A final note on word use is that technically the process, which is the theme of this book, should be described as dependent origination and dependent cessation. The cessation part being particularly significant as it's referring to the ending of dukkha, dissatisfaction, suffering, which is the main purpose of the teaching in the first place. For the sake of brevity and convenience, I will mostly use the term dependent origination as a shorthand for the fuller expression dependent origination and dependent cessation. So, dear reader and dear listeners, please bear that in mind as you make your way through these pages, or as we make our way through the pages together. So the, the, the verses that we chant in Pali, um, What's called the uh, loma is uh, is hair like the hair uh, hair on the skin, and anuloma is with the grain of the hair, and patiloma is against the grain of the hair. So kesa loma nakadantatacho hair of the head, hair of the body. So loma is just that hair or animal fur. So anuloma is the arising part, and then patiloma is the cessation part. So when we do the funeral chanting, we often recite the um, uh, the uh, uh, this sequence of dependent origination, avicca pacheya sankara, sankara pacheya vinyana, and so on. And then the, uh, the cessation part, the patiloma is avijaya taveva asesa viragani roda, sankara niroto, sankara nirota, and so on. So those of you who've done retreats with uh, Goenkaji will also be very familiar with uh, these verses. I think he recites these uh, uh, dependent origination verses very regularly. Also, I refer to specific conditionality, idapachayata, quite often, and the, the Pali that uh, is, uh, say, the, is 
the um, uh, the source of this that essential teaching on on specific conditionality. Uh, I've also got here at the front of the book, so you can refer to that as well. That, and that uh, idapachayatara is um, characterized by the uh, the teaching that when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. And the Pali is iti imasming sati idam hoti imas imas upada idam upajati imasming asati idam nahoti imasanirota idam nirujati. So, any questions, comments, thoughts? Now the last piece I'd like to uh, uh, kind of cover by way of introduction is uh, the the epigraph, which is the, the like a little quotation that you put at the front of a book. Uh, I use the the definition of catastrophe from the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, comes from the Greek kata uh, and um, and strophein. Uh, so kata uh, means to means down. And strophein means to turn, uh, so it literally means to overturn or something to be to be turned upside down. Uh, and it means and the OED definition is a final event, a conclusion, generally unhappy, a disastrous end, finish up, conclusion, upshot, overthrow, ruin, calamitous fate. And then with respect to apostrophe, I used a a, um, uh, a little passage from a, a very um, I think a very insightful, wonderful play. Um, uh, so it's actually talking about a comma rather uh, and a, uh, rather than an apostrophe. But I use poetic license there. And uh, so this is from a, a play called Wit, by a, written by a woman called Margaret Edson, who was a primary school teacher. It's the only thing she ever ever published. She won a Pulitzer Prize for this play, and it's about uh, a, an English professor who's dying of cancer. And in this dialogue, um, they are talking about a poem of, of John Donne, which I, I've got here, which I can read out for you. And it's a dialogue between this professor who's got uh, terminal cancer and her, her old university teacher. Um, uh, and it's a, a memory of a dialogue they had when she was a, a young student. And they are talking about this, this poem of, of John Donne's. And the, the last line of the poem is, uh, and this is the the, uh, the uh, elder professor is speaking. It reads, "And death shall be no more, comma, death thou shalt die." As she as she recites this line, she makes a little gest gesture of the comma. Nothing but a breath, a comma, separates life from life everlasting. It's very simple, really. With the original punctuation restored, death is no longer something to act out on the stage. It's a comma, a pause. The, and the, what she's talking about is in the original printing of this John Donne poem, there was just a comma after uh, death shall be no more. Comma. In later editions, it was a, a semicolon, which is a much harder stop. And, and funnily enough, in this edition, which is an Oxford Book of English verse, it's actually a colon, which is an even harder stop. <laughs> so, uh, but what she's saying is um, that uh, is principally that uh, uh, around that. Uh, that way of understanding death, and uh, and then it becomes very pertinent to this person's life, and it becomes the title of the whole play.
It's a comma, a pause. This way, the uncompromising way, one learns something from the poem, wouldn't you say? Death, life, soul, God, past, present. Not insuperable barriers, not semicolons, just a comma. Then Vivian, the, the woman who's got cancer, is a, a young student, she says, Life, death, I see. It's a metaphysical conceit. It's wit. I'll go back to the library and rewrite the paper. And her professor says, It's not wit, Miss Baring. It's truth. The paper's not the point. It isn't? Vivian, you're a bright young woman. Use your intelligence. Don't go back to the library. Go out. Enjoy yourself with your friends. Hmm. So I felt that was a, it was a play I was familiar with, and I felt that in uh, the apostrophe being just a, a, a little mark that indicates an absence was very much in the same spirit that she's talking about here. That um, you know, that, that death that is is so sort of dramatised and made much of in John Donne's original vision, in the, the original the expression of the poet was just it wasn't a big uh, a big uh, kind of dramatic ending it was just uh, uh, just a comma just a, uh, the, the lightest of pauses just a, uh, a breath not insuperable barriers not semicolons just a comma and so I felt that that, uh, that represented in, in quite a, a good way that sense of of Niroda Dukkha Niroda uh, that which is about the ending of uh, ending of death <laughs> and changing the attitude towards towards death it's a uh, that is a, a mark, it's a way of indicating a, a change of attitude. It's just a, a subtle way of representing a, a, a shift of view. As our, in our ordinary everyday world, we think of, of uh, death as something dramatic and, and shocking and painful. But um, the more that we develop insight into uh, the, the, the whole process of, of perception and how the mind makes the world so solid and real, as that uh, as the quality of vicha or awareness is, is strengthened, then that way of reifying, of making the world solid and real, and the mind chasing after its dislikes and its fears and its and its desires, then that the ending of something is just a comma, just an apostrophe, just a just a a, a breath. And so we use the word niroda. It's a, it's a word, but it's a word that indicates something has ended. It's like a uh, uh, something that represents a, a nothing, an ending. So just to share with you the John Donne poem. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy picture be, much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and souls' delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost poison, War and sickness dwell, sorry, and dust with poison, war and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellst thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, 
thou shalt die. Uh, again, I realize English is not the first language of most people here, and that's the old-fashioned English. He wrote that in 1609, so 400 years ago. <laughs> but just to, to let you know where that, that came from. Okay, so we can go into the book proper now. The first chapter is called Before We Begin. The theme for this book is dependent origination. We can call this the wheel of birth and death, or the wheel of becoming in classical language, or cycles of addiction in modern language. My intention is not for this to be an academic presentation. I'll try to describe and explain these teachings so that they'll be of immediate benefit to all of our lives, specifically addressing methods whereby the wheel can be let go of, or even broken. The subject can be very complicated, but I will endeavour to keep it practical and direct. Those of you who have read about the Buddha's teachings on dependent origination may have thought that the subject was Byzantine, very complicated and, and uh, hard to understand, and impenetrable. The twelve links, or twelve sections of dependent origination, can seem confusing or strange. That's a common experience. But at the heart of the teaching is a very simple principle that I will aim to focus on. Hopefully, during the course of this book, we'll be able to explore and investigate this teaching and see how the different pieces fit together and how they explain experiences that we're all familiar with. A theoretical map, Idda Pachayata. It is significant that the Buddha was engaged in the deep exploration and analysis of specific conditionality and dependent origina origination immediately after his enlightenment. So then there's a quote from the suttas from the, uh, this is from the Mahavaga, the beginning of the, the book of the, uh, one of the books of the discipline, and also in the Udana. Thus I heard, on one occasion when the Blessed One was newly enlightened, he was living at Uruvela by the banks of the river Niranjara, at the root of the Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment. Then the Blessed One sat at the root of the Bodhi tree for seven days in one session, feeling the bliss of deliverance. At the end of the seven days he emerged from that concentration, and in the first watch of the night his mind was occupied with dependent arising in forward order thus. That comes to be when there is this, that arises with the arising of this. That is to say, it is with ignorance as condition that formations come to be, with formation as condition consciousness, with consciousness as condition name and form, with name and form as condition the sixfold base, that's the six senses, i.e. a nose, tongue, body, mind. With the sixfold base as condition, contact. With contact as condition, feeling. With feeling as condition, craving. With craving as condition, clinging. With clinging as condition, being. With being as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death come to be. And also sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief and despair. That is how there is an origin to this whole aggregate mass of suffering. Knowing the meaning of this, the Blessed One uttered this exclamation. When things are fully manifest to the ardent meditating Brahman, his doubts all vanish, for he knows that each thing has to have its cause. In the second watch of the night, his mind was occupied with dependent arising in reverse order. Thus, so the the, the uh, uh, forward order is the anuloma, and the what he calls the this is Venerable Nyanamoli's translation. What he calls the reverse order is the patiloma. 
That does not come to be when there is not this. That ceases with the cessation of this. That is to say, with the cessation of ignorance, there is the cessation of formations. With the cessation of formations, the cessation of consciousness. And name and form, the sixfold base, contact, feeling, craving, clinging, being, birth, aging and death, cease. And also sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief and despair. That is how there is a cessation to this whole aggregate mass of suffering. Knowing the meaning of this, the Blessed One uttered this exclamation. When things are fully manifest to the ardent meditating Brahman, his doubts all end, for he perceives how the conditions come to end. In the third watch of the night, his mind was occupied with dependent arising in forward and reverse order thus. That comes to be when there is this, that arises with the arising of this. That does not come to be when there is not this, that ceases with the cessation of this. That is to say, it's with ignorance as condition that formations come to be, with formations as condition consciousness, so on and so forth. With birth as condition, aging and death come to be, and also sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief and despair. That is how there is an origin to this whole aggregate mass of suffering. With the cessation of ignorance, there is a cessation of formations. With the cessation of formations, cessation of consciousness, and so on. To the cessation of birth, aging and death, cease. And also sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief and despair. That is how there is a cessation to this whole aggregate mass of suffering. Knowing the meaning of this, the Blessed One then uttered this exclamation. When things are fully manifest to the ardent meditating Brahman, there, like the sun who lights the sky, he stands repelling Mara's hosts. The very core, the source code of the process of dependent origination is the law of specific conditionality, idda-pachayata in Pali, as is described in the quotation above. The Pali word idda means in this or here. Pachaya means conditioned or affected by. The suffix ta means the quality of or ness. Idda-pachayata thus means the quality of having its foundation in this, being causally connected like this, being by way of cause or conditioned by thisness. In essence, it's the process whereby one thing affects another. In the above passage from the scriptures, it can be summarized as when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. Questions, thoughts? Yes. Um, so, um, when uh, additional formations come into being, it means that they have a cause. So, like some cause previously was um, created, and then the mind acts upon it. So, uh, then it leads to dukkha. Like, uh, it's, uh, it leads to dukkha, yes. It leads to dukkha, yes. So, um, it's some kind of disharmonious. Uh, not enlightened from the faction, not the right faction. And then, um, the right action that is not based on original formation would be uh, something that is not uh, connected by the cause of the previous karma and impressions. So it would be um, immediate. Like, um, it would be what? Immediate. Mm-hmm. Like there wouldn't be 
this equations up here. It would be uh, something that uh, comes uh, without uh, distance from second moment, right? So it would be wouldn't be the harmony well, yeah, it's uh, the um, uh, there is uh, an, another teaching that I go uh, refer to later on, which uh, covers uh, um, the the same area of experiencing, uh, in, but in a slightly from a slightly different angle, and it's how the the mind relates to uh, experience and feeling, like sense perception and feeling. Um, when there is um, concentration, mindfulness, and wisdom, and so that then there's still seeing and hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, because of the you know the body and the senses operating, then um, if there is sufficient concentration, mindfulness, and and wisdom, uh, samadhi, uh, sati, and panya, then rather than the experience of feeling or or, or perceiving going towards dukkha. It, it's still a, a, there's still a causal process. It's still one thing affecting another. But because uh, there is that, um, uh, say, the informing quality of mindfulness and wisdom, then that uh, the the flow of experience doesn't lead towards dukkha. Rather, it leads towards liberation and uh, and peacefulness. So it's still a causal process, but it's because of, of the, the presence of, of essentially. Uh, mindfulness and wisdom, awareness, then that process of experiencing, uh, it doesn't lead to, to dukkha, it leads to a, a quality, of, it leads to nibbana, essentially. So, so it's not about uh, personal qualities uh, that they manifest in action, but it's more like a mindfulness and wisdom, which is uh, impersonal. Yeah, it's, it's not personal insofar as uh, the the more that the the quality of, of of mindfulness and wisdom is established, then the less there is the the habits of self view and 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 identification that's affecting the the whole system, and so that when there is feeling, um, then the, the vedana, the, then rather than that feeling leading conditioning tanha, which it does in the the standard sort of dependent origination pattern, so vedana pachaya tanha. So, in uh, if there's a basis of, of mindfulness and wisdom, then that feeling um, it, it, what it, it uh, say conditions or supports qualities of concentration and more mindfulness, more wisdom, and that leads to to liberation and to to nibbana. And so that um, with uh, in the the second the, the patiloma, so avijaya toeva aseso viragani roda when there's because it, it uh, what it means is that when there is no ignorance, when there uh, when when there is vicha rather than avicha, when there is awareness rather than than ignorance, then uh, that sankara doesn't arise. That kind of the and that doesn't mean that we stop sort of perceiving or uh, that the senses shut down or uh, or that um, we, you know, the feelings come to an end, but rather the mind doesn't make those solid. It doesn't make them me and mine. It doesn't hold them in that that distorted way. It uh, it, it knows well, this is a feeling. This is what's being experienced. It doesn't say I am uh, I am happy or I'm I'm unhappy. I'm hot. I'm cold. It's uh, it's not personalizing or making them uh, falsely giving them a false solidity. 
but rather it's um, seeing them as they are. It's a feeling. This is the feeling of liking. This is the feeling of disliking. This is the feeling of comfort. This is the feeling of discomfort. And so then that um, that Vedana then it um, uh, it helps to support the quality of concentration, which supports mindfulness, which supports wisdom, and that supports deliverance and and the realization of uh, the deathless and peacefulness nibbana. So um, basically, this uh, when there is no amount of mindfulness, it means that mind kind of harms it, so it doesn't really understand the danger of the kind of concept. Exactly. And basically, the one for concentrating that because this uh, mindfulness means that it will completely manage the consequences of exactly. Yeah. So that the, when when the, there is a lack of mindfulness, then uh, a, a comfortable feeling then say, oh this is good you know, I, you know, I'm happy and this is a good thing and this is this is my experience and it it takes it gives it a false solidity and, and makes it personal you know, you know, I, uh, I've got what I want I'm happy this is good and takes those to be absolutely real uh, qualities and similarly if I'm uncomfortable or things are, are, are painful and difficult this is what I don't want this is bad this is wrong and and, and I don't want to feel this way. So it personalizes it, makes it it's solid. And so the more mindfulness and wisdom there is, the more uh, there that the that quality of, of awareness is is sustained. Then it's uh, more and more quickly and completely the the mind knows it uh, those feel, well, the nature of feeling and doesn't get drawn into it. So as with the, you know many of the aspects of of the the they uh, escape from the cycles of, of the um, dependent origination, the, the, the wheel of becoming. It's uh, often pointed to that the weakest link is between feeling and craving. And so the, uh, a lot of the forest tradition practice focus and, and uh, the teachings of many of the great meditation masters focus upon feeling uh, and, and seeing how feeling conditions craving and learning to be mindful of, of feeling aware of, 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 of feeling and perception so that then those habits of, of chasing after what we like and, and running away from or contending against what we dislike those those, those habits are understood and can be let go of and so there's the, um, the realm of, of uh, perception and feeling is uh, the mind is relating to it with a quality of uh, responsivity responding to it rather than reacting Okay, I'll just read a little bit more. The twelve links of the classical recension of dependent origination are cast in the form of one thing conditioning the next. They affect each other, but the exact way in which each of the twelve links affects the others can vary. One of the most important distinctions in that way of affecting or conditioning is that they can either they can be either sequentially in time or synchronically, i.e. concurrently, simultaneously. Again, these are long English words, <laughs> not, not easy to understand. Also, um, Ajahn Tanisro has written a lot about this, and it's very helpful, his, his um, description of this same, this same verse about conditionality. He uh, analyzes it quite, quite thoroughly in, um, in his uh, teachings. So, 
Uh, an example of sequential conditionality would be that of an acorn. Uh, so an acorn, like a, a, a seed from an oak tree, uh, is called an acorn. Having been planted, it conditions, later in time, the arising of an oak tree. If there was no acorn, it would be impossible for an oak tree to arise. So that the acorn, planted in the ground, then is a, a, a condition that is, supports the arising of an oak tree. If there's no acorn, you can't get an oak tree. An example of synchronic conditionality would be when sunlight shines through the window onto my desk. So I was writing this. <laughs> if I hold my hand above the desk, the shadow of my hand forms on the surface. There is a conditional relationship between the shadow of my hand and the light on the desk, which is completely synchronic. The sunlight pervades the area that the shadow leaves, and the shadow pervades the area that the sunlight leaves. They affect each other simultaneously. So, um, you know, both of those are fairly uh, rough examples, but it gives you a bit of an idea what that means. So, synchronically means literally at the same time, and then sequentially means one thing after another. Without going into too much detail, suffice it to say that there are many different ways that such affecting, quote-unquote, can take place. Classically, there are said to be 24 modes of such conditioning, but to list them all would probably cause more confusion than clarity. For those who are interested, they are gathered in the book of the Abhidhamma called Conditional Relations, the Patana. So it's, it's all there in the books if you want to look it up. Um, it's helpful simply to understand that with respect to the connections between the 12 links, dependent origination, dependent cessation, that it's not a matter of a uniform linear chain of A directly causes B, B directly causes C, C directly causes D, etc. Rather, it should be understood that the pachaya, quote-unquote, aspect means A affects B in some way, B affects C in some way, and so forth. With these conditional relations being sometimes synchronic at the same time, sometimes sequential, one thing after another, Sometimes partial, so they, they have a part of a, a small effect or a partial effect. Sometimes conascent, like you know, arising at the same time, born together in one of those 24 modes. Thus, dependent origination is not a simple linear mechanistic process, but rather one that is complex, nuanced, non-linear, and responsive. And again, in the Abhidhamma, the, the chanting we do for funerals, along with the um, Avicca Pachaya Sankara, one of the chants that we do is the Hetu Pachayo Aramana Pachayo. That one, that uh, Hetu Pachayo chant. That's the condition. That's the twenty-four conditional relations. So some of you might be more familiar with those than you realize. But when you read the English translations of some of those Pali words, it can be extremely unclear exactly what they're what they're what they're about. Um, so there, there are explanations and good commentaries. Available on uh, on Abhidhamma if you do want to follow follow those up. I think uh, in particular Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, explanations are, are quite helpful. So, any questions? Yes, comments. Or meditating in Brahman. And the question is, as Brahman, as the, as the parent, does that refer to uh, the same concept or the same reality as the human condition uh, knows the absolute reality to be as, as Brahman? Is that the same 
Uh, no, it's uh, the Buddha is using the term to refer to a meditator. So, okay, in the 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 Dhammapada, there's the Brahmanavaga, the the, the uh, chapter uh, on the Brahman, and uh, it's a uh, uh, in a way it's a commentary on the caste system. And so he's saying a true Brahman is a is a meditator, a spiritual practitioner. And so uh, and so throughout that that in particular that, that section of the Dhammapada, those verses talk about you know a, a true meditator, a true spiritual seeker. This is how they operate, and it's independent of one's birth or ancestry. So in that that passage about um, well, he was the sort of spontaneous verses that arose in his mind uh, after that week of sitting under the Bodhi tree. Uh, when things are fully manifest to the ardent meditating Brahman, there like the sun who lights the sky, he stands repelling Mara's hosts. So it's just like the the, um, the ardent meditating yogi or, or spiritual practitioner. Because he will always be so once he affects the other, mm-hmm. and my understanding of affects is like it's already there. The other thing is already there, right? Um, well, yeah, there isn't really a perfect English word, uh, and I, I tried to sort of spell it out there that sometimes there are things that arise together, like co-nascent means being born at the same time, and so that it's. Um, uh, you know, one thing is related to another, or is um, uh, being causally connected like this. So that the the definitions of avida pachayata, it's like it's uh, it doesn't mean that both thing that one thing is there first and the other one comes along after. They can be they both come into being together. Like the shadow appears when the sun comes out. Yeah. And that they're they're related together and they, and they affect each other. But um, it's it's uh, they are, and I try to give that example um, uh, about uh, sunlight and shadow. Of course, it does take some time for the, <laughs> the the light to pass by your hand and reach the desk. But I thought that was poetic license again. I could get away with saying it's at the same time. Um, yeah. So it's it's uh, uh, there's a, a relatedness between the the two. Uh, the two parts, and and also um, in the uh, in the, there's uh, quite a number of different uh, descriptions of dependent origination. There's about nine varieties that you get throughout the Pali Canon, and that um, and they um, and so that it, the different ways that the different parts affect each other is is sometimes it takes quite a bit of of, of reflecting and and getting a sense of what the, how the words work to, to get a real feeling for what's being said. So, for example, in the Mahanidana Sutta, that the the, well, the discourse in the Diganikaya where the Buddha was talking to Ananda, in that it go, it, it starts off with well, it goes back from from dukkha and and through through uh, birth and then follows the cycle all the way back to um, say my nama rupa conditions consciousness uh, and uh, it's because of consciousness that in nama and Ru- nama rupa arise and then and then it says because of nama rupa because of uh, of nama rupa consciousness arises that the, the two it, it kind of goes back that far and that um it uh, and that the two lean upon each other nama rupa and vinyana they, 
they they lean upon each other or they they affect each other. So logically, it's like, well, how can <laughs> yeah? This is the, the the largest discourse about uh, dependent origination, and that particular pattern is quite not totally unique, but somewhat unique. Oh, so consciousness conditions. My, uh, mentality, materiality, and mentality, materiality conditions consciousness. And then it says in the Sutta, it turns back upon itself. So it's one of the reasons why um, it can be, the whole subject can be quite confusing because it can seem, well, hang on a minute, that doesn't match what it said in the other Sutta. So there's a, a, a number of places where things don't quite match up. So part of the purpose of doing a book about dependent origination was to try and and help people get a feeling for what the different terms refer to and, and getting a, a direct sense of how to work with the, the whole gestalt, as it were. So I'll leave it there. Today I have a, a meeting I have to be part of at 7 o'clock, so I have to draw things in another world. <laughs> so draw things to a close there for today. Sadhu Kalanda Dhamma 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 Sadhu Kalanda